1 Thessalonians 5, verse 6, Paul says, Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. And Father, we humbly ask now that you would just quicken us by your Holy Spirit to be alert and attentive to the ministry of what your Spirit would want to say in this place this morning to each one of us assembled here. Lord, you said that when we draw near to you, that you would draw near to us. And we ask you to specifically do that now through your word, through the very word of God that you inspired by your spirit. Lord, we each confess that we need to hear your voice speak directly to us in our lives. And we want that this morning. So prepare us accordingly. Bless your word. And as always, we ask your spirit be our teacher and minister and that you keep anything that would hold back from us hearing your voice this morning in Jesus' wonderful name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, there is something both wise as well as I think very beneficial to both getting prepared and also staying ready. And that is important both to God as well as I think it's important for us specifically as it relates to the subject of the coming of Jesus Christ. And that's what this passage is dealing with as we continue through the fifth chapter this morning. It's a challenge regarding what it means to both become number one and then to remain prepared and ready for Jesus' return, teaching us specifically how to go about that and what things that we can avoid as well as what things we can also do to pursue and to make sure that we do certain things to get prepared and stay ready for Jesus' return. The main exhortation, should you fall asleep, no pun intended, considering what we're reading together this morning about sleep, the main exhortation in this text really is an exhortation to avoid spiritual drowsiness. To avoid spiritual drowsiness. We're given some instructions here that challenge us to avoid falling into spiritual drowsiness. And if we take these challenges to heart and we act upon these things, they will help us to stay ready. Look with me, if you would, back in verse 6 there, where we began reading. Notice that very first word. It's really critical, particularly to this passage. It's a hinge word. The word, therefore. It's a hinge word in the sense that that term is a connecting word to two things. The word therefore in the English language is a word in essence that means in light of. So it's always a hinge word. In light of what I just said, therefore. Or in light of what we just discussed or in light of what is true, in light of the reality that we just indicated, therefore, in light of that, 
do this or don't do this or respond in this way. And so this is the idea. It's a reflection word back to what's just been declared as the reason for the appropriate response now that's coming in the statements ahead. Now, in light of that, the prior section a good portion of chapter 4 which we looked at and the beginning of chapter 5 that we looked at last week we've been learning a good deal about the coming of Jesus the return of Jesus all that involves what's going to happen the events associated with that and I hope that you were able to be here the last two times, the last two studies, as we looked at those things thoroughly and in depth, because that will give you the best background and understanding for the things that we're now talking about this morning as an exhortation to respond in light of that. Uh, if you weren't, the messages are available online, and I think it would be good to listen to them because it will make this message, therefore, all the more applicable. But... Casey, whatever it was in your situation, for the sake of flow and context, either way for this morning's study, if you'll bear with me briefly, to just review and refresh our minds, because it is critical that we're saying, therefore, in light of these things, now respond this way. If you look back with me in chapter 4, by way of quick review, verse 16 there we read chapter 4, verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we, Christians, who are still alive and remain on the planet, the idea is, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. We talked about this coming event that could happen at any moment nothing left need be done to be fulfilled prophetically this event the harpazo it's referred to in the greek the catching away of the saints we often call it the rapture it's one of the terms we give to it where the bible speaks of how jesus will appear in the clouds there will be this authoritative sound in this call and command of jesus where he catches all of the christians off the planet in an instantaneous moment, we are taken up to meet Jesus in the air to be reunited with those saints who've already died and are in heaven with Jesus to be reunited with them to meet Jesus in the air and to go and be with the Lord, which then begins the onset of this thing called the day of the Lord, which the beginning of chapter five refers to. Now, he then says, chapter 5, concerning the times and the seasons, that is regarding when that's going to happen, he says, you really don't need that I write to you. One, because he didn't want us overly focused on trying to set a time or set a date. Jesus said, no one knows the day or the hour, as well as they no doubt were fully aware of some of the indicating signs which the Bible gives to us of what we should be looking for to tell that the storm, that the, the reality is on the horizon. He said, verse 2, you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. The idea is catching people off guard unexpectedly. And we talked last time about this day of the Lord, which basically is something that happens directly after the rapture or instantaneous removal of Christians off the planet to go be with Jesus, begins this period, not a 24-hour day, but a time period, a day of the Lord, where in a sense, Jesus is having now his day. The day of man is done. 
The age of grace has come to a cessation. God's patient toleration with the rejection of him and his son Jesus Christ are over. And now he takes cool control and now it's his day. And this day of the Lord begins, which includes, we talked about last time, the seven-year period of tribulation and all the events that will happen upon the earth during that time, the revelation of the Antichrist, a one-world government, a one-world economy, all these things, all the cataclysmic judgments that will be coming upon this planet, bringing tremendous suffering and torment upon humanity for the rejection of God, where the wrath of God, the wrath of the Lamb, is being unleashed upon this planet during those seven years, which also that day of the Lord then includes, we said, the second coming of Jesus, where then we, as well as all those who died before us, having been in heaven, escaping that, will then return with Jesus in his second coming when he comes back to the earth, literally touches down upon the planet, sets up his kingdom there in Jerusalem and rules and reigns for a thousand years. So this is what the day of the Lord, and we talked about it in great depth last time, includes. We even touched upon how verse 9 and 10 further, in a sense, indicate more of the reality of what's going to be experienced. Let's just finish reading verse 3 to 5 for sake of context. He says, for when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction, remember we emphasize the pronouns, comes upon them. Referring to unbelievers as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. And Paul says, they unbelievers shall not escape. He then says, verse four, but you changes the pronoun now. But you, brethren, a term for Christians, are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We're not of the night nor of the darkness. And again, we looked at last week verse 9 and 10 in connection with these verses to further emphasize the reality that the Bible does seem to, I believe, personal conviction clearly teach that we're not appointed to wrath. He says, they, them, this is what's coming upon them, but you, we, separate pronouns, we're not appointed for these very things. And we said verse 1 to 11 deal with the subject of the day of the Lord kind of in two ways. It gives us an explanation about it which we talked about in depth last time. And then we also have some verses here that give us exhortations how to live in light of that reality of the day of the Lord that's coming upon this planet. Last time we talked about the explanation, we discussed a lot about in detail the day of the Lord. This morning we want to focus our attention upon now the challenges and exhortations of how should we live therefore in light of that. And this is what our text is going to talk about. And one of the things that we learned regarding the coming and the return of Jesus is what we might call the doctrine of imminency. The doctrine of imminency, or we might say the imminent return of the Lord. Sometimes you hear that statement. The word imminent really means, in essence, that something's about to happen and it actually may happen at any moment. That's the idea of imminent. So when we say the imminent coming of Jesus... We're saying that we believe the return of Jesus could happen at any given moment. And when you look at Jesus' own language, he repeatedly made statements to that end. For example, Matthew 24, Jesus said this, Be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So as believers, we are intended to live in a sense and a condition as Christians that we have a constant expectancy that Jesus could come at any moment, literally at any moment. So we are to stay occupied 
and be occupied serving the Lord, being responsible in the culture we live in, not being lazy or lethargic, being fully engaged and occupied, yet, in a sense, living and sitting on the edge of our seat, realizing this may be the last day I get to work at this job. This may be the last day I get to be around any of these fellow students. This may be the last day that I get to love my family and take care of my home. This may be the last day that I get to do whatever it is I'm doing because at any hour, Jesus could just interrupt it. And then it's too late. Then it's over. So we're to live with this sense of this imminent return of the Lord, anticipating His coming. And in light of our awareness of those things as believers, because we're not in the dark, but we're enlightened. We are the ones that are enlightened. Paul then says, verse 6, look at it, Therefore, let us, therefore, notice again, he brings the pronoun back to himself, included as Christians, let us not sleep as others do, but let us, he says, watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us, he says, who are of the day be sober. Again, using this illustration of day and night to sort of picture spiritual light and spiritual darkness, he's clearly now giving a warning, a challenge to avoid spiritual drowsiness. Do you see it there? Look what in the text in verse 6. Paul says, let us not sleep as others do. Now, unlike back in chapter 4, where there the word sleep was used as a picture of physical death of the believer, here, by way of not only context, which is evident, but even the word change in the Greek that Paul uses, here the word sleep is being used to picture or represent spiritual drowsiness. He uses the word sleep here to indicate being spiritually asleep or drowsy. We might say it illustrates a condition of being lethargic spiritually or apathetic spiritually, sort of disinterested, indifferent about the things of God. And I want you for just a moment to think about the condition of a person when they are sleeping and what that condition is like. And I want you to think of it as we talk about it for a moment in relation to how that's a very interesting parallel to spirituality and what can happen as well. When a person is sleeping, just think of a few things. When you're asleep, there's a disconnection from conscious awareness of what's going on around you. When you're sleeping, you become completely inactive. There's no movement anymore. You're not doing anything. You're just laying there doing nothing. When you're sleeping, you cease from communication. You're not hearing anything anymore and you're not talking and communicating with anyone anymore. When you're sleeping, your ability to feel sensation and stimulus is greatly diminished and when you're sleeping you're somewhat unresponsive i know i live with four women and three teenage daughters you try and wake them up once in a while very unresponsive because when you're sleeping that's what you're like when you're sleeping you you, you, you can wake up and you're very unresponsive you're very desensitized to stimulus and not to mention you're very unproductive and all those things but in a sense, sleeping, let's be honest, it's a very self-gratifying experience. The only one really who's enjoying the sleep, especially if you're a snorer, the only one enjoying the sleep is you. Sleeping is a very selfish experience in the sense it's self-serving. Now, just ponder that, if you would, 
take a, a, a walk and think through that today in regards to how that can happen spiritually because it's a picture spiritually of how, in a sense, we can become drowsy and asleep spiritually. Paul realized there are always going to be those who are in that condition spiritually because that's why he says here in verse 6, let us not sleep as others do or as others are doing. Paul's realizing, and he includes himself here, this will always be the condition of some people. There will always be some, in a sense, who are asleep spiritually. Now, one picture of unbelievers, or we might say unsaved people in the Bible, is that they are sort of in a deep sleep spiritually. In fact, I think if you're going to be honest about it, you have to say people who are unsaved are, in a sense, they're in a spiritual coma. A spiritual coma where they're completely out of it altogether in regards to spiritual things. Remember verse 5, we looked at it. There Paul symbolized the unconverted person as, as those who are sons of the night and the darkness. That is, they're living in darkness, spiritual darkness. And then now in verse 7 there, he speaks of those who sleep, sleeping at night. The idea is they follow the typical pattern. That's typically when you sleep. So in a sense, spiritually speaking, the unbeliever is in a deep, comatose sleep spiritually. And the reason is the spiritual light of God has never, in a sense, invaded their soul and their spirit. The spiritual light of God has never been turned on inside of them. So in a sense, they're unconscious, therefore, of God and the things of God. There's no communication happening with God. They're not sensitive to the things of God. Uh, and basically, they're inactive spiritually regarding spiritual life. They're unconsciously consumed with self-gratification, like the sleeping person who's just, in a sense, benefiting themselves and themselves alone. They're unconscious of that self-gratifying life in many ways. Ephesians 4 describes the unsaved person this way. It says their understanding is darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling, they don't feel anything anymore, having given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness. So technically the Bible says they're spiritually dead and because they're spiritually dead, therefore they exist in life sort of like in a spiritual sleepwalk as they walk around their planet. And the deep need of the unsaved person is a spiritual awakening. They need to have a supernatural awakening in their soul to become awake to the realities of God and a relationship with His Son, Jesus Christ. That's why Ephesians 5.14 says, Therefore He says, Awake you who sleep. Arise from the dead and Christ will give you light. That's the need of the unconverted soul. If you're here this morning and you don't truly know Jesus Christ, I'm not talking about do you come to church periodically. I'm not talking about even do you read the Bible, which is a good, wonderful thing, or say a prayer when you're in crisis mode and like the need of when your finances fall apart and you've got to tap your emergency savings fund. And a lot of people look at Christian life that way. You know, the little Christian life is like their, it's their emergency savings fund. When all I can't maintain what I can maintain, then I got to go tap the emergency savings fund. And that's what people look at God that way sometimes. Listen, if you're here today and you are spiritually asleep still, God wants to bring an awakening. He wants to awaken your soul and, and let you know what it means to sincerely experience Him in your life. 
to awaken you in a salvation experience with the Son. But let's be very honest and true for ourselves in this room, hopefully the greater majority of all of us who are Christians, that even once we've been enlightened spiritually, even once we've been awakened spiritually, we as well can become sort of drowsy and sleepy in our spiritual condition. It's possible for us. Notice that Paul includes himself. He says, let us not sleep. He's referring to himself as a fellow Christian. Let us not sleep. We as Christians can begin to drift off course and sort of get lulled asleep by the enemy of our soul. The devil has this crafty way of sort of, in a way we don't even realize it, it's so crafty of singing sort of this spiritual lullaby where he just lulls us to sleep as Christians in the ways that he works in our lives. And as a result, believers can start to experience the symptoms even of the sleeping person. Where even as a Christian, we can begin to become spiritually drowsy and somewhat unconscious of the things of God anymore. And all of a sudden, we're unsensitive to the things of God. We're unsensitive to the Spirit's conviction. We're unsensitive to what God is trying to say to us. There begins to become a cessation of communication. We don't hear God speaking to us anymore. And we're not very interested, honestly, in speaking to God ourselves. Unless we got a crisis and then we want Him to bail us out as a cosmic genie once in a while. As Christians, we can become, in a sense, unproductive. We just become lethargic and apathetic. There's no movement. We're not growing anymore. We're not going anywhere. We're not serving the Lord. We're just, you know, hanging on to our ticket to salvation. And we can become like a sleep-ridden person in a way spiritually, spiritually drowsy. Jesus specifically warned and even repeatedly cautioned against that spiritual tendency of falling asleep in relation to his return. On multiple occasions, for example, Matthew 25, Jesus gave that parable of the wise and foolish virgins, some who had oil and were ready, others who didn't have oil in their lamps. But then Jesus declared this, and I want you to hear it regarding all of them. He said this, not just those who had oil and those who didn't, but all of them. He says, but while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. In that parable, Jesus pictures everybody slumbering and falling asleep. Listen to what Jesus said in a teaching in Mark 13, verse 32 to 37, a particular teaching that was about the subject of his coming. And listen how Jesus says this. Verse uh, 13, or excuse me, chapter 13 of Mark, Jesus says, but of that day and that hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. He then said, take heed Watch and pray, for you do not know when the time is. It's like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants, to each his own work. And he commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch, therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, in the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping." Again, Jesus continually cautioned and warned against this propensity that we all have to begin to get drowsy spiritually, to begin to fall asleep. Let me say this this morning because it'd be wrong if I didn't be honest. Today, is it possible that you have began to become spiritually drowsy? Is it possible? Paul says here he understands that struggle and temptation as a fellow believer and even as a spiritual leader because Paul says, 
Let us. I'm not saying I don't get spiritually drowsy as a pastor. Paul says, let us, fellow Christians. This is a struggle and a temptation for all of us. So he exhorts now in light of the imminent return of the Lord, let us not sleep, he says, despite what others do. Instead, he's now by the Holy Spirit's leading, as we look at our text, going to give some instruction how to avoid becoming spiritually drowsy in relation to the return as we await the coming of Jesus. The first thing, again, if you're a note taker, you may even want to jot a few of these things down because I think they come to us topically from the text. The first thing that I see that helps to avoid spiritual drowsiness is to remain spiritually alert and attentive. To remain spiritually alert and attentive. Look at verse 6. What does he say? Let us not sleep, but let us, he says, watch. Let us watch. The idea there is like a guard that would be on watch for the city or a guard that would be on watch for the house. He says, let us watch. The idea there is to stay awake, to not fall asleep, to remain attentive, to remain alert, uh, and to pay attention. It's a picture of the inward spiritual condition. He says, let us watch. We need to be watching. And let me say this morning, there is indeed a difference between, I found, patiently waiting and actually attentively watching. There's patiently waiting, and then there's attentively watching. For example, it's one thing to patiently sit in your easy chair with your shoes off and your coat off and your wallet in the next room and to sort of just patiently wait because you believe somebody will show up eventually when they get there. As compared to the opposite, It's a whole other thing to be up, to have your jacket on, to have your shoes on and tied and your wallet in your back pocket and your keys ready and to be standing there at the door looking out the window because you believe somebody's going to show up at any moment. That is a picture of actually watching attentively. Big difference. Now, I remember years ago, Um, when we were living in York and pastoring the church there and we lived at the first house that we had bought there in Pennsylvania on Easton Avenue, we had a all-glass storm door. And I remember when all three of the girls were little, my wife was home with them, and, and as I would come home at the end of the day, the girls knew around the time that I would get home. Oh gosh, I think this was gonna happen. And I remember they'd stand there at that glass door and you come around the corner and pull up after having been gone working hard all day and can't wait to get home to see the stinking things. (laughs) Take over my wife's insanity. (laughs) And there they are at the glass door with their faces looking out the window and then you you start to pull in the driveway and then they even start doing one of these and you're going to come in and wrestle with them and, and you know, look, that's a picture of attentively watching. It's very different than patiently waiting. And that eager anticipation, that that eager sense, that enthusiastic expectancy, that's what we're commanded to have in relation to the return of Jesus. To not just be patiently waiting, but watching. Watching with that sense of alertness and expectation. Jesus said, Matthew 25, watch because you don't know the day or the hour the Son is coming. He says in Revelation 16, Behold, I'm coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches 
and keeps his garments. You know, isn't it interesting how there are certain times, again, if I can illustrate, in the human body when we can come into what they call a heightened state of awareness or a heightened state of alertness. For example, this happens in the human body. I'll tell you two occasions when we dump caffeine into our bloodstream or when adrenaline is dumped into the human bloodstream. When caffeine or adrenaline is dumped into the human bloodstream, the result is a heightened state of awareness. There's a heightened state of alertness. And I believe that's a very beautiful illustration of the exact same thing that happens spiritually when on occasion in our life we experience a fresh outpouring of the Spirit of God upon our lives. I remember when I first got saved, it was like an adrenaline rush spiritually. I was, there was a heightened sense of awareness of God and the things of God and the Word of God and what mattered to God. And in the same way, I think as Christians, there are occasions, that's why Paul says, be ye being filled with the Holy Spirit. Because when a person experiences a fresh outpouring of the Spirit of God upon their life, they're awakened, they're arrived, uh, revived, <laughs> they're revived and they're more alert spiritually. They become more attentive to the things of God. And perhaps this morning, as you leave this place or we sing a final song, it could be a great occasion to say, Lord, I need that. I want an adrenaline rush spiritually, Lord. Pour out your spirit into my life afresh to awaken and give me that heightened state of spiritual awareness. A second thing we see in our text to avoid spiritual drowsiness is also to remain in control of our moral and spiritual condition. To remain in control of our moral and spiritual condition. Notice that two times... Repeatedly, Paul declares here at the end of verse 6 and then again at the beginning of verse 8, he says the same thing, let us be sober. Here he uses this comparison of a picture of a getting drunk versus remaining sober. And he's alluding to the importance of being able to remain in control of our moral and spiritual faculties. Paul says in our verses there, those who get drunk, he says they typically get drunk at night because that tends to be the pattern of those who drink. And he says, but the person who wisely chooses not to drink, they live differently, they stay sober. Now, I want you to think again, as we did with sleep, think about when a person is drunk, when they're intoxicated and under the influence of alcohol. When a person becomes drunk or intoxicated, they lose self-control. They find themselves, whether they want to or not, coming under the influence of that substance which then directly controls them. And the substance dictates their thoughts and their speech and their behavior and it begins to rule over them. They're now ruled by something else. They lose self-control and they're now ruled by that substance. It's what's now influencing them and their faculties and reasoning capacities are altered. Now, in contrast, when a person stays sober, it's the exact opposite, right? When a person is sober, they're in control of their own thoughts. They're in control of their own words and their actions, and they're able to process decisions, to handle things better because they're sober. They have control over their decisions, their speech, their behavior. So the sober person is a very fitting picture of a person who's living in control of their own life. 
A person who is in control and therefore able to make good decisions and avoid ruinous decisions and ruinous behavior that will lead to regret. So the idea here of being drunk compared to being sober is a very good picture of the moral and spiritual condition of a person's life and being able to stay in control of that. I mean, let's be very frank this morning. Many people all around us become drunk and intoxicated with things of the world system. Not just alcohol. People will become intoxicated with their own passions and the pleasures that they pursue, that their body drives them out. People become intoxicated with wealth and greed and power and position and prestige and self-glory and, and worldly pursuits and the indulgence and intoxication of whatever the unhealthy substitute may be. All of those things still lead to a life condition where people start to lose personal control over their life and whether they realize it or not whether they want to admit it or not and even if they don't see it they can gradually come under the ruling influence and control of something else other than God and the free will that he gives to a human being in the way that he intends and let's be, be, be very honest with this it does not even have to be something inherently evil folks it doesn't they go, oh, yeah, you're horrible. I mean, that's so horrible. You got a drinking issue. What did you, you're a drunk, man. I can't, I can't believe you waste your life with heroin. You're so hung up on heroin and it dominates and controls your life. But some people who are saying that have their own substance abuse problem with something else. Maybe it's pornography. Maybe it's greed. Maybe it's self love. Maybe it's just a selfish attitude where you are about the most selfish pig in your house. And the world revolves around you because you're intoxicated with yourself. And see, there can be lots of things that rule over to us. Rule over, 1 Corinthians 6 says it this way. All things are lawful for me, meaning I have the freedom to do things in grace, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of anything. See, the Bible says we have freedom to do a lot of things in this life. In, in, in the age of grace through Christ, it's a wonderful thing. We're not under the law. We have the freedom to choose to do things. And again, some things that aren't inherently wrong. But when something begins to become not helpful in our life, and something then begins to take control of our life where we're under the power of it, whether we realize it or admit it or not, but it drives us. And, and let me just say this. Here's the bottom line. Everybody's ruled by something. Everybody is. Everybody is ruled by something. The key to life is finding the right master. His name's Jesus. And being under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Remember how Paul said it? Be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. You see what Paul was doing? He says, you see how drunk people, when they're under the influence of wine, how it affects them? And he says, look, perfect illustration. God wants you to be drunk with the Spirit. God wants your speech, your thoughts, your behavior, your decisions, your, your faculties, your perspective to be fully under the influence of the Spirit of God in the same way where that would rule over you. God's will is that we be free from things controlling us but be under the influence of the Spirit. So Paul says, in light of the end times, what's coming on the world, he's saying here in our passage, in light of the, the, the return of Jesus, he then says in this Section two times, let us as Christians, let us be sober. He says, let us be sober. The idea is living with a sense of 
showing restraint, able to abstain from things that we should, maintaining boundaries because we're having good reasoning as a sober person, living in a way where there's a measure of discipline in our life, we can remain in control of our moral and spiritual condition. Again, Jesus said, warning in direct relationship to his coming. Once again, Luke 21, Jesus said this regarding his coming. Take heed to yourselves, pay attention, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and cares of this life, and that day come upon you unexpectedly. Hey, let me ask you the question I think we all need to ask in a passage like this. Is it possible today that Jesus would say to some of us, you need to sober up. You need to sober up spiritually. Regain what God would intend regarding how the Christian life is to be lived. A third way we see to avoid spiritual drowsiness in our text comes at the end of verse 8. He then says there, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet the hope of salvation. So here's a third way to avoid spiritual drowsiness, to remain on guard because we realize we're in a battle. To remain on guard because we realize we are in a battle. You see the language Paul uses there again? He does this frequently in the New Testament. It's military language, battle terminology. It's a picture of the aspect of spiritual life. And the very fact that Paul uses language like this in other places, which are terms that describe the armor of a Roman soldier who would go into battle, indicate what? Part of the Christian life is a battle. It's a battle. So the very fact that this language is used indicates that if we are following Christ, we need to realize that we are involved in a spiritual war. There is a spiritual war that goes on in the unseen realm it's experienced in this life a constant warfare between good and evil, between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness that the devil manifests and operates, and it involves continuous repeated attacks and assaults, and there is spiritual conflict in the lives and souls and circumstances of humanity nationally, internationally, individually in people's souls and lives in families, that there is this constant warfare happening in the spiritual dimension. And when we got saved, at that moment, King Jesus removed us from the tyranny of the devil. And he drafted us into his kingdom and his army instead. Paul, talking to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, said that we've been enlisted by our commander-in-chief Jesus to engage in warfare. And he says, we must therefore endure hardship as a good soldier, Paul says of Jesus Christ. In Ephesians 6, there's that whole chapter there, a big chunk of it, where Paul gives a teaching on about spiritual warfare and how we must protect or guard ourselves by putting on the armor of God. And here we see Paul in our text now this morning using very similar language. He refers to, in verse 8, the breastplate, which is one part of the armor, and he refers to the helmet. Now, interesting that he, Paul uses just these two here because those were two of the most essential pieces of armor because they protected the vital organs and they protected against a head blow, both of which could completely take a soldier out. So Paul uses these two and he says, as the days are waxing darker as we get closer to the end and there will be an increase of satanic activity, Paul says, we have got to be crucial about putting on continually the breastplate of faith and love. 
Again, the breastplate would protect or cover the heart. So he's talking about that there needs to be a guarding or protecting of our hearts from an unhealthy condition spiritually and morally because he knows the devil will fire his arrows and will seek to use his sword to inflict a unhealthy condition and defile and weaken the heart condition of people to get us to, as Christians, turn away from the faith, to get us to turn away from the faith or to just simply destroy our personal faith in Jesus and in the word of God. To cause doubt and despair instead or to not obey the word of God because we don't trust that it's authentic or authoritative or accurate anymore. And we also have to guard as we guard our hearts. Notice not just in regarding faith but regarding love. We have to guard our hearts against things happening that diminish or destroy love in our hearts. Again, very interesting. Matthew 24, a chapter about the return of Jesus Jesus says this regarding the latter days. Listen to what Jesus says. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. And the word love there Jesus uses is the term agape. That's spiritual love. And Jesus says, as lawlessness abounds in the last days and it gets darker and more chaotic, he said, the scary thing as Jesus predicted is he says, the agape love of God it'll start to grow cold. Christians will become cold in their hearts towards the Lord. They'll become cold in their hearts among other Christians. Done with these Christians. I'm cheesed off. I'm going somewhere else. They'll become unloving towards the world. We'll become more angry and self-righteous with the ungodliness in our world rather than burdened and saddened and concerned and saying, gosh, we need to pray. How do we reach these people? This is horrible. Their lives are being destroyed. And Jesus says this will be one of the marks even of Christians in the last days. So we need to guard our hearts against our faith being attacked, against love being attacked. And he says also putting on the helmet is the hope of salvation. Again, the helmet protected the mind. Guess where else the devil likes to attack people? In their minds. To do what he can in a strategic way to convince people to think wrongly about God to think wrongly about God's word, to think wrongly about God's will, to deceive people, to think wrongly about sin and spiritual living and even just living matters in general. And particularly to distort people's perspective, Paul says regarding the hope of the salvation that's coming in Jesus. That's a reference to the culminating experience of the salvation process where the blessed hope and glorious appearing of Jesus comes to get us out of this world. And he says, one way the devil will try and attack the mind of God's people is to distract the minds of Christians. And let me go so far as to say, I believe even un-Christians, in a way whereby the devil attacks the mind to create a mindset in people. And here's what it is regarding the return of Jesus. Oh, there's plenty of time. I mean, there's plenty of time. There's no rush in spiritual things. What's the urgency? I mean, I'm going to get things straightened out in my life. Eventually, I am. I've been working on a few things over here and I need to have a little more fun. For, but I, you know, I'm, going to, I'm going to straighten things out eventually. I'm going to really get serious about Jesus eventually. I'm eventually going to get around to it. Do you know how many times I've said that about projects around my house? Don't ask my wife. Can tell I don't believe Jesus is coming to do a home inspection. <laughs> Eventually. 
And sometimes as Christians, I think the devil attacks our hearts and minds with these tranquilizing darts in these destructive ways. Paul says then, verse 9 and 10, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Now here's a fourth area I think we can, in a sense, guard against spiritual drowsiness, and that's this, to remain aware of our spiritual destiny. To remain aware of our spiritual destiny. Now, we looked at these verses as part of our study last week and addressed the primary point of these verses there where it refers to and reinforces that the wrath of the day of the Lord, beginning with the tribulation and then culminating in eternal damnation in hell, is something that we as Christians do not have an appointment with, at least anymore. We once had an appointment with the wrath of God, but because of what Jesus has done for us, when he, verse 10 says, died for us, as the result of that, Jesus said, there's an appointment for wrath in your life, as there is for every person, because of our sinfulness. But Jesus said, I'll tell you what, I'll take that appointment for you. And Jesus absorbed the wrath of God so that we as Christians, by trusting in him by faith, can escape the wrath of God. And our appointment with wrath has been canceled and rebooked on the salvation tour bus to get to have Jesus take us out of this world to elude the coming wrath of God. And look what it says. Not only do we get to escape the wrath of God, but look verse 10 again. Here's here's the better part, that we should go and live together with him. That we would get to go and live together with Jesus. We're going to get to go to heaven and live together with Jesus. Imagine how wonderful that's going to be to live together with Jesus. And see, when we recognize that reality and keep it on the forefront of our hearts and minds, that should motivate us to live properly now in this earthly life because we realize our citizenship is in heaven and there's this sense that keeps us alert. If the end goal is to live together with Jesus forever, I should probably live for Jesus now because I'm going to live with Jesus forever. That's what this short life is going to fall into. This life's a vapor. So therefore, where should my greatest priority be? And it's often not, and it grieves my heart. It should be, look, this life is preparation for eternity. And when we keep that perspective, I think it helps us to stay alert spiritually. We'll look at one final way to avoid spiritual drowsiness. Verse 11, Paul wraps this section up by saying, Therefore, comfort each other. Edify one another just as you also are doing. Here is another way, but I think don't overlook, a final way to avoid spiritual drowsiness. Let me put it this way. Remain in spiritual fellowship. Remain in spiritual fellowship. Do you notice the emphasis of verse 11? What is it on? It's on community with God's people. Each other. One another. You see it in the verse there? Each other, one another. We're supposed to be sharing our spiritual lives with other Christians, dwelling with each other, being together. Why? So we can comfort each other. Because guess what? Living as a Christian in this world and as the days get darker, there's a lot of hurtful, harmful things that happen and painful things that happen. We need each other to comfort one another to bind up wounds and to embrace one another and pray for one another and patiently, lovingly, when somebody's hurting, come along and comfort one another so that we don't become vulnerable. Pray for the devil to completely wipe us out. That's why we need to be with Christians. 
Why we need to value and esteem. I need to assemble with God's people. It's not just, well, I need to do it. Out of, no, we need it because we need to comfort one another and that's how we edify and build each other up and strengthen one another. Notice Paul says there in verse 11, just as you are doing. In other words, Paul says, look, you're doing this now. You are getting together. You're focusing on assembling together, but he's saying just as you are doing, be careful, don't stop doing it. You're doing it, but don't ever let anything, for whatever reason, give you an excuse to stop doing it. Assembling and interacting with other Christians is crucial to spiritual health, and it is essential to spiritual preservation. Listen to how Hebrews 10 says it. Hebrews 10, 23 to 25 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day, the day approaching. Hebrews 10, the writer of Hebrews says, look, do you want to hold fast so you don't drift off where you shouldn't go? Do you want to hold fast, he says? The Lord is faithful, but he says, part of holding fast is considering the need of one another and stirring each other up mutually as Christians. And he says, and not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as some Christians are already starting to do. But he says, in fact, as the day's approaching all the more, there should be a greater commitment to this. A greater commitment. Listen, uh, one of the things that is so tragic for me to watch at times as a pastor is to see people who are Christians who begin to forsake the assembling together with other Christians. It is one of the greatest ploys and tactics of the devil to make Christians spiritually drowsy, to get them isolated where they're then more vulnerable to get in trouble, to let the devil manipulate their minds and corrupt their hearts and ruin their spiritual lives. You show me a Christian who is committed to being with God's people consistently and regularly and puts high priority in that, and I will show you a Christian who's not perfect, but is doing pretty well spiritually. You show me a Christian who kind of has a, well, yeah, I mean, when I can, when it's important, just kind of half-hearted, very apathetic, and no real, you know, I need to be with God's people. Whenever I can, however I can, and I oftentimes can find you Christians who don't do well, who start to struggle in their lives. This is very, very important. Listen, these are exhortations to avoid spiritual drowsiness, but what happens if we've already become spiritually drowsy? Romans 13, I encourage you, go look at the end of the chapter this afternoon. There Paul gives an exhortation and says, here's what happens. We need a wake-up call. And this morning, as we close in a final song of worship, you know what? May the Spirit of God speak to each of our hearts. And maybe what we need to say is say, Lord, can you sound the alarm loud enough in me, in my soul, to wake me up? Let's stand together. Let's pray.